Well, hey, we're glad you're with us this morning. Um, as I said before, we're uh, heading into a, a new series, and um, I know many of you guys have <clears throat> been asking about this one, and we are ready to jump in. <clears throat> so I'm going to get set up real quick. This is a little different this morning. Um, I told my wife, I'm going to sit, <clears throat> and she said, no, you're not. I said, I am. <laughs> so just as proof of wrong, I'm going to do it. Um, kidding. I'm, this is it. It'll last a good five minutes. <clears throat> All right. Well, welcome this morning. We are excited you're with us. Uh, there's a lot of content. And so um, what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of set the, um, uh, set the uh, overall feel for Revelation, um, what you need to know ahead of time, and then um, we're actually going to go into uh, chapter one a little bit today. So um, just so you know, when we talk about going through the book of Revelation, um, this is a weird thing. See, I've already <laughs> broken it. One second. We're really, prof- we're really professional here. Uh, and your pastor's short, so that helps. All right. Whoa, that's good stuff. See how natural this is? All right. Revelation. So I want to give the overview and kind of where we're looking, and, and then we're going to kind of look at uh, chapter one briefly. Just so you know, Revelation, we're going to kind of hit some bigger topics. So we're not going to be able to go verse by verse through this, uh, but we are going to hit some major topics, some bigger themes as we think about Revelation. And so if you have your Bibles, we will be in Revelation chapter one. Uh, now, here's the thing. I realize as we look at the book of Revelation, there is a wide variety of those who are here this morning and those who are online. Those who have never read this book before, um, those who have never gone through really any book of the Bible before, um, those who have read other books about Revelation, whether it be Left Behind or others, uh, those that have heard about this book of Revelation, those that have studied it, those who have found a podcast and loved it and fell in love with the book, uh, those who um, have bought convertibles so that you're ready for the rapture at any moment to just go through, those who have thought that every single thing of 2020 was the mark of the beast, uh, and students who, honestly, if you're a junior high, high school student in the room, and when you thought about the work of Revelation, like I did when I was in middle school, high school, I'm like, please, Lord, don't come until I get married. Please, Lord, don't come. You've all thought it. Uh, in middle school, high school, everybody's like, isn't it great? God's going to return. And we're all like, no, it's a terrible thing that he's going to return. So wherever you land this morning, um, we want you to know you can jump in. And I want to kind of put us all on the same level playing field. Um, the reason I chose this book for summer um, was not because I feel like we're uniquely in the end times or that we're, uh, we needed to cover this because something's coming. That wasn't the reason for, for picking this. My goal of picking Revelation was simple, and it was to remind you and to remind myself of who it is that we worship, um, who it is that we give obedience to, and who it is that will win in the end. Um, and so that's really the thought behind Revelation. It, it, it's going to show you who we worship. It's going to talk about what obedience looks like, even through, even through some very difficult things. But ultimately, Revelation tells us who wins in the end. Um, I don't know if you realize, but the book of Revelation has far more images of Christ than any other book of the Bible. Uh, even the Gospels really don't give as many 
uh, visuals as far as what we see of Christ as we see in the book of Revelation. So it's a very unique book with that. And so we have to start with uh, some lenses to read this book, some glasses, if you were, to kind of put on uh, before we go into this book. Because believe it or not, we all have come into this book with some different lenses or glasses that you've all had on that maybe you don't realize. But we all have lenses through which we're going to see the book of Revelation and I want to share which ones I use. I want to share what I'm going to, to look at this, this book through this, the lens of, and then hopefully give you some ways to kind of think through it yourselves. Regardless of where you land this morning, regardless of you know, where you're going to fall on any given spectrum in Revelation, I hope and pray that we would all be able to land on the four rocks or pillars of Revelation, and that are these. Um, one, that there will be a visible, physical, literal return of Jesus. I hope we can all say, yes, amen, there will be a literal, physical, visible return of Jesus Christ. Uh, hopefully we can all land and say there will be a future bodily resurrection. How, when, what that looks like, we can probably all have many debates on and disagree and think about, but ultimately we, we all agree there's a future bodily resurrection to come that Revelation is going to tell us about. We all hopefully are on the same page that there will be a final judgment for those who are without Christ, and that's why evangelism is so important, because there will be a day where there will be a final judgment, and, and, and he will divide out those who are saved and those who are not. And we all um, hopefully get to this point as, as well that we all agree that there is a literal heaven and a literal hell. And because there's a literal heaven and a literal hell, this book of Revelation can go a bunch of different ways, but because there's a literal heaven and literal hell, it hopefully spurs us on to say, no matter how I feel the timing of everything pans out, I realize that there is an end in mind. And therefore, regardless of where I land, I know that I've got to reach people for the sake of the gospel because it is ultimately Christ who we worship, Christ who we give obedience to, and ultimately Christ who wins in the end. Now, chapter 1, uh, verse 19, actually gives us a really pretty concise view of, uh, overview, I guess, of what Revelation is all about. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, um, there's the word spoken to John in Revelation 1, 19, and it says this, Write therefore the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. If you were to look at the book of Revelation, it is truly past, present, and future. And so John gives us this whole scenario wrapped up in, this whole book wrapped up in one verse, and he says, I'm going to tell you to write about the things that were the past, I'm going to tell you about the, write, the things that are, and I want you to write about the things that are to come. Now, there are timelines as well within the book of Revelation. I want to kind of give you a broad scope look at Revelation for those who've never been in this. So the timelines are by sections or by chapters in a broad sense, and they're also in a specific sense. So let me give you the broad first. Timeline looks like this. Um, the church age in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, uh, you're going to see a lot of what is at that point and how he was writing to the churches in that area, literal physical churches in that area. And then um, this church age is expanding from what I believe even into today. And then in Revelation chapter 4 to 19, uh, there will be a tribulation age. Uh, and then somewhere towards the end, you see the seven year um, specifically to that. And then you see the thousand year kingdom age in Revelation 20 or what's called the millennium. We're going to get into that in just a second. Um, Revelation chapter 20 is the thousand year reign, the kingdom reign here on earth where Christ will set up his kingdom here. Uh, and then we believe that there is an eternal age in Revelation 21 to 22. So if you were to kind of get the full book of Revelation, you kind of explain it in very simple terms, it would look a lot like that. 
Um, if you were to see it uh, in a timeline, it would look like this. So that chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, if you were to kind of say, okay, so what's the whole book look like? I don't know if you can read that from there. We can make these available. But um, the first, chapter 1, is what I'll call the past uh, and that is the things he is writing uh, in the past or the things that have happened in the past. And then chapters 2 and 3 are the present age, the church age, the present. And then I believe, and this is where a lot of people may disagree, but I believe that chapters 4 to 19 and on is all future. So if you see the color coding, it's past, present, and future. Um, chapters 4 to 22 is all to come. Uh, and then in chapter 6, we get a seal judgment. Uh, in chapters 8 and 9, we get trumpet judgments. In chapter 16 is the bowl judgments. And in between all of those, there's what's called uh, an intermission or an interlude. It's almost as if uh, one of the professors I was listening to said, it's almost as if like you're interrupted by a call or a text that comes in, like you're in the middle of something and all of a sudden there's a text or a call that comes in that diverts your attention from your project that you're working on at work and, and now you're kind of drawn into that. That's what these interludes are. They're, they're kind of breaks in the storyline. And so there's a first interlude in chapter 7. There's a second interlude that goes from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 15. And then ultimately in chapter 19, we see the return of Christ. And then 21 and 22 is the final. So if you were to kind of see the book of Revelation as a scope, as a whole, uh, this is how it's laid out chapter by chapter and the themes that are there. Bless you. Um, so uh, that is kind of the big scope. And I know this is going to be a lot of head information, but um, hopefully... Um, it will make sense as we continue through the entire series, not as we continue just through this morning, okay? Some other things that you may need to know um, when it comes to the book of Revelation before we dive in. Uh, there are over 300 allusions to the Old Testament. Some go up to 500, some go up to 800 allusions in the Old Testament alone. So if you think that Revelation is its unique book and there's, there's nothing that, that the Bible has to say, it's completely wrong. Um, there are 300 allusions to the Old Testament. It has the most images of Christ in the New Testament. And, and somebody has said it's almost like the Grand Central Station of the Bible where every book of the Bible will flow through the book of Revelation, which is crazy to think, right? That he gives us this end apocalyptic book and all through it though, you're gonna see every bit and nuance of Old Testament, Jesus, everything is gonna be woven into this book. Most images of Christ in the New Testament talks about Satan's demons and antichrists. And so a lot of the students are like, yes, finally a series that talks about some fun stuff. Uh, I don't know, but it's going to get into some weird things. So, uh, and then it predicts one final, uh, a final one world totalitarian and urban empire. We'll talk about that as we go through the book. And then also, um, it was written under Roman Caesar uh, Domitian. Uh, and this is probably, we're going to get into this later, but this is probably one of the key things that, that would differentiate where I view the book of Revelation, where others may view the book of Revelation. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is uh, where we place the authorship and the dating of Revelation really messes with how you see Revelation 4 all the way through to 19. If you date it earlier, you're going to get a different view. If you date it later, you're going to get kind of my view of, of where I think it goes. But this is important because it was written under Roman Caesar Domitian. We're going to talk about more about that later through the series. Written somewhere between 80, 90, and 95. Some go earlier. Some say it was written in 68. 
AD, and there's reasons for that. But ultimately, we believe it was, I believe it was written later, and I think there's reasons for that. Written by John on the island of Patmos. This is John the Apostle. Written to seven literal churches, S in the area, that are in the area, sorry. Uh, that are in the area, what is today modern Turkey. Okay, so lit- seven literal churches. These are not um, imaginative. These are um, real churches written into the area. All right, everybody good? Stick with me, okay? There's more head knowledge. Okay, all right, here we go. So also, within this book, there are three timing of events. There are three major events that happen in the book of Revelation. Like I said, this is going to be a lot of head knowledge today, so stick with me. Uh, three timing of events that are in Revelation, and we have to understand these in order to understand the book. First off, there is the timing and the um, laying out of Revelations chapter 4 to 19, or the fulfillment of chapters 4 to 19. There's a whole bunch of things that fall underneath that category. The other category that you're going to run into in the book of Revelation is what's called the millennium. This is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, and that is another key timing issue that has a bunch of different views underneath of that, if that's even a thing. Some would say that's not even a thing, so that we'll get into that. Uh, the rapture is the other third piece of timing in this, and this is crucial for us to understand, and there's a bunch of things that fall underneath the rapture as well. So let's take these piece by piece and give you a couple views that fall underneath each of these because these are important for you to know as we look at the book as a whole before we get into chapter one. Number one, uh, Revelation chapter four verses, uh, chapter four to 19 is about the fulfillment or how these things happen. So if you look at chapters four all the way to 19, there is a timing events that, that we believe these happen in or how do these happen? When do these happen is a key question. And there are a bunch of different views that come into this idea of when chapters 4 to chapters 19 actually happen, or have they already happened? Does that make sense? Some believe that they are still to come. Some believe that they've already happened. So let me give you the views that are out there and what they mean. Um, For those who are uh, big into knowledge, you're going to love this. Others of you, just zone out for a little bit. We're going to get into chapter 1 in just a second. But uh, the, the four different views are this. There's, there's a view called preterism, and you're like, what the what? Uh, preterism, you're going to hear about that in just a second. There's a historicism view, idealism view, and then a futuristic view of how these things play out. In other words, some would say 4 to 19 happened in the preterist view. Chapters 4 to 19 happened in the historic. You're going to see what that means. So let me give you the first one, the preterist view. Um, those would say, uh, people that fall into this camp, uh, and you may be here this morning, and that is perfectly fine. You, you, you may say Revelation was written earlier than 90. It was actually written in 68 AD. And so a preterist would say all of the events that happened as you read them in chapters 4 all the way to 19 actually already were fulfilled. So there's what's called a full preterist view, which basically says all of the events in the book of Revelation have already happened during the fall of the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They would say that everything that happened from chapter 4 to 19 happened during the Jewish wars and happened when, uh, in, the, in the year of A.D. 70. And so they would say it was written in 68 to these churches saying, hey, in two years, all of the things you're going to see are going to happen in A.D. 70. That's one view. Um, others have what's called a partial preterist view. This is a lot in the Reformed uh, theology. Uh, R.C. Sproul is one of the guys who uh, believes in this as well. And he says that most of the events in the book of Revelation have already happened during the fall of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. So not all of them, but some of them have happened, but, but they all still dated as an earlier 68 AD uh, fulfillment. Does that make sense? So, that, so one view would say all of this is in the past. Uh, all of this happened earlier. 
Historic's view, uh, that's the Preter's view, Historic's view says Revelation is being fulfilled and the present is a panorama of church history. So many would say that no, Revelation's actually happening right here, right now. We're, we're not seeing it all happen, but, but it is, is happen, happening in the heavens and it's happening around us and Revelation is being fulfilled right here, right now. Chapters 4 to 19 is actually happening right now. Uh, and is a panoramic or a picture of, of church history. That's one of the views as well. An idealist view says that Revelation is timeless and depicts the battle between the church and the world through all church history and is mainly symbolic. So they would take chapters 4 to 19 and they'd say, a lot of this isn't really happening on the earth. A lot of this is happening in the heavens. There's not really a whole lot happening today. It's all symbolic of the evil and good battles that we hear about in the heavens all around us. Make sense? So one view says it's in the past. One says it's in the present. One says it's in the heavens. Makes sense? Because that's idealist. The futurist view, uh, says it like this. Revelations chapter 4 to 22 describes people and events yet to appear on the world scene, and it all happens at the end of history. In other words, the futurist view says we don't see this yet, but it is to come, okay? And there's some issues, I'm sure, that come with this view as well. So those are the four different views about how chapters 4 to 19 happen. Now, there's other views then as well, and you may have heard these if you've been in church world. Um, there's also what's called rapture views of when does the rapture actually happen? When does Jesus come back for his people? And so there are four different views here. There's what's called a pre-tribulation view that it happens before all the, the bad stuff. Uh, there is a mid-trib view that says uh, it happens midway in between all the bad stuff. Uh, there's a post-trib view that says it happens after all of the bad stuff. And then there's what's called a pre-wrath view. And a pre-wrath view uh, says that this actually happens um, in the middle of a seven-year period. So just so we're clear, when I talk about tribulation, some of you guys are like, what are you talking about? So tribulation in Revelation says there'll be a seven-year period where there is a whole lot of chaos happening, including bulls and seals and wrath and things that happen on this world that the world has never seen. Persecution like we've never seen, um, catastrophes like we've never seen, and tribulation uh, is basically saying that there's a seven-year period that, that Revelation tells us is going to be a part of our, our future. In the seven-year period, some say that Jesus comes before the seven-year period. Some say he comes mid. Some say he says post. Pre-wrath is, is kind of like a mid-trib-ish. So, so pre-wrath is, is basically like saying, okay, they would say in the seven-year period that somewhere around year five and a half, Jesus comes. And they say Jesus comes about year five and a half because it's at year five and a half that things get really, 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 really dark, okay? So they would say God in his goodness would never allow his people to go through that. So he allows the beginning part to happen, but he doesn't allow the back part to happen. Does that make sense? So he comes in the seven-year period, he comes around five and a half, and that's kind of the pre-wrath view uh, when it comes to that. All of this stuff we're going to be getting into, I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, this is all um, church world language and, and things that maybe you've not heard of, but want to give you the idea. The last one then is the millennium, and this is a thousand-year rule of Jesus Christ, and there are three different views that happen here. One is what's called the amillennial view, which basically says there is no such thing as a millennium. Uh, it is symbolic in nature. Uh, it doesn't actually happen. Uh, and then there's a post-millennial view, which basically says that... Um, 
this all happens after we're in eternity. And there's what's called a premillennial view, and that is that Jesus will reign before all of our eternity stuff happens and everybody's taken up into heaven. All right? Okay. Some of you guys are like, sweet. Some of you guys are like, oh my gosh. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> I get it. There's a lot here. There's a lot of different views. And depending on where you land, uh, you're going to love this. Other of you guys are like, just get to the text, man. Just get to the text. Help me understand the text. We'll get there. So those are the different things that, that are surrounding us. Let me just kind of give you right from the outset where I land so you don't have to guess uh, about where I am, and I land in a futurist, premillennial, pre-trib view, and a lot of you in the room may be like, ah, you can't ever, why would you, I can't believe you believe that. Others of you in the room are like, amen, thank God, there's somebody who believes in futurist, premillennial, pre-trib. Others of you in the room are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But apparently, it's pretty exciting for church people. I get it, okay? Um, so just so you know, that's where I'm going to take things. And we can debate this all day long because, again, the things that I know that we all agree on, whether you're a amillennial, historicist, mid-trib person, or whether you're an idealist, amillennial, pre-wrath, or whether you're whatever you are, the beauty is we all can have the four solid rocks of this. That one, there is a physical return of Jesus Christ. There is a future bodily resurrection. There is a final judgment. And there is a literal heaven and a literal hell. Okay? Uh, I believe the handout as well uh, has that um, on it, right? Does we have the slide on that one too? Is that correct? Yeah. So if you're looking for uh, notes, there, there is the handout that actually looks like this. It has all those views on it. And um, for those who are interested in that. Okay. Context is fun. All right, so let's go into Revelation chapter 1. Regardless of how you land, I wanted you to know where I land, and then we're going to start having some more fun with that as we get into chapter 4. But we got a task in front of us of getting through some of chapter 1 in about 14 minutes. All right? Here we go. <clears throat> so let me just give you how the chapter breaks down in chapter 1, and I'm going to give you couple points out of chapter 1. We're not going to go verse by verse. Just give you a couple thoughts as we come into Revelation chapter 1. Um, number 1, uh, how the book was written. You're going to see how the book was written in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. You're going to see how it was communicated. What are we talking about? And then you're going to see the greetings to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And then you're going to get the vision in Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 9 through 20. Okay? First thing you need to understand, it is not called the book of Revelations, it is called the book of Revelation, okay? So just so we're all clear on that, uh, you've probably heard it many different ways, but it is actually a revelation, not multiple revelations. This all happened in one revelation, not multiple revelations. Again, this is not the revelation of John. Many of you guys have heard this, like it's a revelation of John. No, this is a revelation to John, okay? This is a message from Jesus Christ to John. We get this um, in this first verse uh, where he says in um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. 
Revelation is the only book in all of Scripture that says there is an actual blessing to going through this. That's crazy. It is the only book written, there is a specific apocalyptic kind of view that, that is only Revelation. Now, there are others in Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah that have pieces, but ultimately, this is unique. And we see that it was, it was given by God through Jesus, through an angel, to John, to the churches. <laughs> and you're like, that is a long chain. Wouldn't it have just been easier for God to just come to the churches and be like, hey, here's what's happening? It would have been. I don't know why. But God said, I'm going to send it through Jesus Christ by angel to John, to the churches. And so that's how this vision then gets communicated to John. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are born before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come. As we start into this book, I believe the biggest thing we have to understand is, one, Jesus is trying to communicate this to John for the benefit of the world for years and years and years to come. But ultimately, he begins by saying, if you don't get the beginning right, you don't get any of it right. And the beginning is, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who, I'm sorry, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, when we think about the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end, the Alpha and the Omega uh, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the very last letter of the Greek alphabet. But it is specifically saying, I am the, the start of all things. <clears throat> Before creation, I was, and I will be at the end of all things. He says that I, I, I control all of the beginning, all of the end, and I also control all of the middle. This speaks to us specifically because Jesus is then not just my ticket to a desired eternity or future. I don't believe in Jesus Christ just to get heaven I believe in Jesus Christ because he is the full gamut. He is the beginning, he is the middle, he is the end. Jesus is not then as well your greatest way, is not the easiest way to get to your greatest desire. Jesus is your greatest desire. He is all in in all. I was, I am, I will be. You see, in a culture, and I'm gonna come off my chair, so you're welcome. Um, in a culture that believes in any kind of thought or any kind of truth, Scripture comes against it and says, no, 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 there is one truth, there is one way, and there is only Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the beginning, he is the middle, he is the end. Now, here's, here's the issue I have then. If, if people come in and say, well, <clears throat> I can believe Jesus is the end, but I don't really believe he created things, if you can't believe the end, you can't believe the beginning, you're going to have a really hard time in the middle. As a culture who wants to make up all its own truths and wants to rely on uh, this big being out there, if they don't truly believe in who Jesus is as the Alpha and Omega, then all of the middle really doesn't make any sense, right? If he's not the beginning and not the end and through all things, then what do we really have in this life except our own truth and our own realities? 
Revelation is quick to show us and tell us Jesus Christ is all that we need. He is not your ticket to a greatest, greater desire. He is the greatest desire. In the middle of everything, he is all. And we must be consistent then in our theology and say, Jesus Christ, Alpha and Omega, is not just for the, the beginning and not for the end, but he is for today as well. And the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come. So the first thing we see, obviously, then, is that he is enough for all of the things we're going to cover in this book. He is enough for all the things we've covered previous to this book. And he is enough for everything that you walk through in this life today. He continues, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of God clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now let's just stop here just for a second. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to get deep in one, but we got to get deep in one here for a second. We talked about the, the revelation being an image of the Old Testament and many images of the Old Testament. Then I turned and saw a voice that was speaking to me. Where else do we see a voice speaking to a man in the Old Testament? We see it ultimately a lot of times, but we see it specifically in the life of Moses. We see it in the calling of the burning bush. We see it in the Ten Commandments, on the top of a mountain. We see the voice of God speaking and communicating. He is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. So as a Jewish audience, they would say, I turn and the voice that was speaking to me, they would say, okay, we're working with God here. This is a big deal. We remember our ancestry. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. We say, we say golden lampstands. They say menorah, right? So we get turning. He sees a menorah. The seven golden lampstands would be where? The seven golden lampstands would be in the tabernacle. They would be representing the holiest of holy places. They would be representing the place where only God dwells. And then he says, I see seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of God, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. There is a priest standing in the temple. And it is like no priest they've seen before. But the Jewish people would automatically, automatically see this more than we see it today of like, oh my goodness, this is the priest. He is in his temple. He is ruling. He is reigning somewhere. And there is a sash around him. We got sashes as priests, but not like a golden sash that is wrapped around him. This is somebody different. This is a different priest that we're dealing with. This is somebody unique. And the hairs on his head were white. White represents purity. And they would say, this then is a pure priest, a holy priest, like none that we've seen before. Like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. Where else have we seen flames of fire in the Old Testament? Multiple places. But specifically of the Israelites, as they're led by flames of fire ahead of them, they would see images going like crazy in a Jewish mind. They'd be thinking, oh my word, this has been thousands and thousands of years since we've seen something like this. 
Our ancestors told us about these days where there was fire and pillar going ahead of them. We haven't seen this. We've never witnessed this. But we are now, John is seeing this and telling us he is seeing the great priest whose eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. There's reasons for that. We don't have time to get into. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Can you imagine all of this is symbolic uh, in some sense because he's saying it was like these things. It, it, it's, it's if you've, uh, so for instance, this is a really lame example, but um, uh, when, when, when new rides open, you know, this is really like a weird transition, but when new rides open at Cedar Point and you're the first one to ride the ride, right? And you go on the ride and everybody's like, how was it? And you come back and you're like, it was amazing. There was this hill and there was this drop and you felt like, and everybody's standing there watching you going like, I don't, I don't understand. It was good. Yes, it was, and it was this and you're going through the turn and then there's this tunnel and you're back out the other side and, and you end the story of how this experience was with like, uh, you just had to be there. Like, you just got to ride it. Like, I can't tell you. It was just amazing. You just got to experience it. You got you to see this. John, in this example, is like, it was like fire coming out of his eyes. <laughs> and we're all kind of like, like, what now? It was like fire. And it really wasn't fire. I'm not saying his eyes were on fire. I'm saying it was like the heat of fire and the purity of fire. But it was his eyes and his voice was like roaring waters, although it really wasn't waters. It wasn't literal waters coming out of him. But it was loud. Like if you've been around a waterfall or if you've been at the ocean all day and you go back to your condo and all of a sudden like you're, you're in the condo, you're like, wow, it's really quiet in here because you've been outside in the ocean and the noise and the loud of it and the waterfall. He says, his voice was like roaring waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like, again, like the sun shining at full strength. <laughs> That's a vision. That's a vision. I don't know if you've tried to stare at the sun at full strength or not. It doesn't last long, um, or you're now blind. So you, you get the idea that this power and this intensity is coming out of not just a Jesus figure, this power and this authority is coming from, this is key for us to understand, the great high priest, the pure, holy lamb of God, to which the Jewish people would say, amen, he's here, to which the Gentiles would be like, this is nuts, I've never heard this before, but wow, does he sound intimidating. Yes. You see, here's the reality you're going to get in Revelation that you're not going to get in the Gospels. You're going to see a very different Jesus in the book of Revelation. We have today, as a culture, a very tame version of Jesus probably, right? He's my friend. He's my buddy. We hang out. He, he forgives all my sins. He's a great counselor. I go see him every 24 hours for counseling. He helps me. He tells me what to do. He's really good. He's helpful. He's really a great guy to hang out with at parties. Like, he's just a good guy, right? And unfortunately, some people have that image of him. What Revelation is going to show us is he is unlike any other. He is unlike any priest that they have seen. They will see him as deity. They will see him as a priestly ruling God, and he will be like no others. Because he says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's not buddy friend Jesus. That's different. You know, I... I I'll pick on church for a little bit because I, I feel so many people are like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go up and give him the biggest hug. Maybe. 
or maybe we'll all fall down dead. Because it's like trying to stare at the stinking sun, right? Because it's a big deal, because he's holier than us. He's other than us. How could we ever think to approach him with such casualty? Well, we can because there's grace. Amen. Thank you. Right, that's the answer. Because God in his goodness sent his son on our behalf to become sin for us. Therefore, we have a way to the Father through Jesus Christ because he's made it available to us. Otherwise, we all fall down dead as John does. Without Jesus' love, sacrifice, it is a different story. Interestingly enough, if you were to read John 17... Uh, verses 17 to 20, and then you were to go over to Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 14. I challenge you to do that this week. Read Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 14. Read Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 12 to, to 16. I'm sorry, 12 to 16 of chapter 1, Daniel 10. Read those two side by side and see if they aren't very, very similar. See if they're not almost exact. And here's the beauty you have. We said in, in earlier, I am the beginning and I am the end. Thousands and thousands of years he spoke to Daniel and he revealed himself to Daniel. He looked the exact same as he did to Daniel as he does then. The dude doesn't age, right? (laughs) Exact power, exact image. Daniel goes to fall over dead. John falls over dead. But I want to close with this this morning. There's a difference when John than there was with Daniel. And I believe it's some hope for us today as well. Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Catch this. He lays a hand on John. Not just any hand. His royal, proper right hand on John. And he says, fear not. He says, fear not to Daniel. You'll read that. He doesn't lay a hand on Daniel. And he has a different message to John than he did to Daniel. Rightfully so, because the resurrection hadn't happened to Daniel. But the resurrection has already happened with John. And he turns to John and he says, John, you can hope in me. You can trust in me. You can stand up because I've already conquered death. I've already come, lived, died, cross, resurrection. I've conquered it all, John. I am the first and last living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of hell. And I ain't giving them up. They're mine. I hold them. I'm in control, John. And he says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels and the seven church, and of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We're going to get into the seven churches next week. But specifically, he's giving us here a very clear description of what these images look like. You won't always get this. <laughs> There'll be some images where you're kind of like, I don't even know what he's talking about. Uh, That's okay. But here he gives very specific ones. And he says, this is specifically, John, this vision is for these literal seven churches, and I want you to share it. But ultimately, church, this morning, 
we can go a bunch of different ways. We can get wrapped up into verse by verse and really dive into piece by piece. But for this morning, let me just kind of wrap up with this, and that is that Jesus Christ is going to show himself to be very different, but the same. That makes sense. Does that make sense? Very different than maybe think he how he is, but in context and reality, he is who he is. He hasn't changed. He is the same with Daniel as he is today, as he was with John. He has as much eyes like flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, voice like roaring waters today as he was then. We could, if we were to behold him, would have to use words and likes, and he was kind of this way and kind of like that today, as much as John would have to do back then. But here's the reality, and I love this in verse 17, for I am the first and the last and living one. I have died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. John, church, today, church in 2022, you don't have to be afraid if you are in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, I have died and rose and I am alive forevermore. Therefore, I can handle any view you bring at me. I will love you even if you're wrong. I'm just kidding. I will love you even if you're a different trib, millennial, preterist, idealist, historicist. You're kind of like, what are those things? We'll see. Even if I'm any of those things, God says, here's the deal. I'm in control. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the one who is, was, to come. And because of that, all of it comes back to me. Jesus Christ says to us, as you go into this book, I want to remind you that ultimately this book is about me. This book is about your obedience to me. And this book is a reminder to us as the church in an age where we just don't know what's happening next, where we're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. This is a grand reminder to us in the end, we win. In the end, Jesus holds the keys of death and of hell. I am alive forevermore, John. I am able to handle these things. Let me pray for you as we close. Um, and if you want to go ahead, we will be into chapters 2 and 3 next week as we look at the seven churches. Um, again, not in detail, but for those who are interested, moving ahead. But for this morning, I hope that you take away this. As confusing as all these topics may be, as, as detailed as you want to get, ultimately, the part that you have to see is that God is saying to us, be obedient in tribulation, be obedient in the sufferings that you're going through, churches, it's seven churches here, seven churches, or churches today, be obedient and know in the end you have a God who is in charge and can be trusted forever. I'm going to pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, I pray for understanding and for wisdom as we approach this book together. Today was really a lot of overview and intro, and, and God, I hope that uh, it was clear, but, but God, I pray that your spirit would speak to us and, and, would, and would move in our hearts, not just to make it clear, but to move our hearts to be transformed by that clarity, to be transformed by the words that we read, not just reading it for head knowledge's sake, but to be transformed by the one who is the alpha and the omega, the one who is the first and the last, the one who is forevermore. I pray that you would continue to change us. I pray that we would run to this great high priest in front of us who is pure, holy, set apart. And we would run to you. And Father, that you would change us. 
just like you did through Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah. God, you, you changed them in the process. I pray that we would be changed as we go through this book together. Father, we thank you for the reminder that you took care with John and you take care with us. I pray, God, that you would continue to give us comfort as we go through this book, but you would give us a greater passion and desire for you through this book, not a greater desire and passion for more information, but a greater desire and passion for you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this time. And we ask for you to just go ahead of us as we look into this study together. And uh, we love you for it. In the name we pray. Amen.